Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. spoken briefly over the phone about how you were into it very young but I actually kind of wanted to go before that because as we were talking before we started recording you're actually not from the United States right now you reside in the U.S. right and in New York so where how did you get to the United States to begin with because you're working for I mean Higgy Freeman is a is a an American company right correct Uh, so actually well, so two years ago, yesterday, I became an American citizen. Congratulations. Thank you. But no, I first arrived in the U.S. a little over 10 years ago, uh, a company called Hartshafter and Marks, which was founded in 1897, something like 1887, something like that, um, and which had owned Hickey Freeman since the 60s. Uh, approached me and said, Hey, we've got an opening in Chicago. Um, would you like to come? And I was a little disappointed because of course, like Hickey was the dream job. That's where I wanted to be. Um, but they said, well, start in Chicago. And then once you've got that under your wings, then you can expand and start working with the team in Rochester and do some work for Hickey Freeman as well. So actually right from the beginning, I, um, was doing some work with Hickey, but I was primarily at Hartschaffner Marks in Chicago. Before then, you're still, but you're still in Montreal when you're doing all, all of the beginning development of your career in tailoring. So what was that sort of story? Because that all takes place in an entire, in another country. Yeah. So actually, the, the history of tailoring in my family goes back quite a while. Um, my family originally started with paper mills in the Toronto area. And eventually expanded and had woolen mills. And so the tradition of, of woolens and tailoring and the needlework was way back in my family. I remember my grandmother making hats to go with her own outfits. And my mother sewed, her sisters sewed. And uh, my mother first started teaching me how to sew when I was very, very young, just as a way to sort of keep me out of trouble, something to keep me busy. And so I would help her as she was sewing she had like rooms full of mountains of fabric and stuff and as i started to learn i you know i had ideas about stuff i wanted and so i'd start making things i first got sort of serious about sewing and it was funny because i told the ralph lauren team the story and not realizing i was on camera but i don't remember how old i was but you know all the cool kids in school were wearing polo ralph lauren button-down shirts and I was like, I want one of those. And my mother's like, no, you're paying for that horse, not the quality of the shirt. And she showed me 
you know, she'd been teaching me how to make shirts and how to make really good, like single needle tailorings or saying, look at this double needle and all this stuff. You're paying all this extra money just for that horse. And so in secret, I was making shirts and embroidering little horses on the front of the shirt. So I was like a Ralph Lauren knockoff artist um, in my early teenage years. Uh, and yeah, I was, um, I was singing with a couple different musical ensembles. And when you perform, you're in a tuxedo. And so, yeah, I was 14 or 15 when I first made my first tuxedo. And it was just something that I did for fun and just a way of making clothing. I, I loved making clothing, but it was a hobby. It wasn't something I had considered as a career until a few years later. Wow. So it was always kind of in your family. And were you, did you ever have, was there any sort of animosity towards tailoring for you? Because I know... And, I, and it might sound like a bit of an odd question, but I know there are some people who growing up where they're always around tailoring or, you know, some other trade, whether it's woodworking or something, they kind of actually grow away from it because of the pressure that can be put uh, on children to kind of go into the trade. Or even like right now in tailoring, there are many uh, tailor shops in Italy where you have young people, uh, grandsons or sons that don't feel like they want to take over the business, uh, even if they're working in it. Was there ever that sort of situation where uh, your family had wanted you to go into the business? or? Well, so we had gotten out of Woolens probably around the turn of the century. And so it was no, no longer really a business. Um, it was it was a hobby. My mother was a church organist and, and she sewed for friends and family and sometimes to make some money, but it wasn't so much a business. So I didn't have that pressure from that end. And as I said, for me, it was a hobby and it was just because I liked making clothing. And a lot of the patterns and stuff she had at home was, I mean, it predated me, but I remember seeing patterns from designers like Balenciaga and and your you know the early new look stuff and i was really influenced by the sort of the sculptural aspect of tailoring so i really liked the idea that you could create three-dimensional form with cloth and if the cloth itself wasn't enough then you could build layers underneath where there was just a little bit of interlining or and and getting into those just sort of the elements of combining different stuff to create a shape uh, that fascinated me, and I and I, I was really attracted to that. Well, that was actually one thing that I wanted to ask you about, which was kind of like there's haute couture and then there's tailoring, and they kind of go together. They you know they walk together in some aspects, but then in other ways they're different. I actually have a friend who was telling me about his mother who works in, uh, I think they call it atelier flou, flou. and then they have yeah ah, there it is atelier flou, and then what's the other atelier tailleur tailleur. So it's it's not that they're separate. There is a tailoring aspect. In fact, a good friend of mine, Claire Schaefer, just released a new book on couture tailoring. I got my review copy of it yesterday. Um, so if that's something that is interesting you, she's a great author and has a huge library of stuff. So definitely worth checking that book out. Yeah, I think many tailors would also be interested in that as well. So does she go into uh, sort of the draping techniques is it more on the side of haute couture or as well as menswear kind of techniques or tailoring? Or? It's it's purely couture tailoring. I haven't really bust. I flipped through it, so I haven't looked into it in detail. But she typically what she does is she'll take 
uh, vintage couture garments, study them. Um, I mean, she's been to the the houses of couture in Europe, so she she knows it's not just like what I was doing, tearing stuff like apart. Um, and she'll she'll show you a specific garment and say, okay, this is how they achieve this technique. And she'll have stuff in there that men's tailors won't necessarily be familiar with because there's a lot more shape for women's um, than we normally have to deal with. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you was was why menswear for you? Because you had this, you were exposed to more of the women's wear. And like you're saying, you're, you're, you'd seen the new look, you'd seen Dior, you'd seen Balenciaga. So what was it about menswear that was particularly different or intriguing that pushed you in that direction? So it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I was singing an opera chorus and one year we were doing a, a fundraiser and we needed costumes for this fundraiser and it turned out that they were very expensive and they said, listen, um, we don't have the budget to rent the costumes for this fundraiser. We know you can design stuff and make patterns and so would you consider designing this production? We'll give you like 18 seamstresses and a, a small budget for materials. And so I designed the Notre de Figaro and halfway through that like so i'm still intending to be a musician professionally right and halfway through this i'm like i could probably have more fun and probably make a slightly better living doing clothing design that i would doing music so i went back and even though i, I realized i probably wasn't going to learn a whole lot new stuff i said i'm, I'm probably going to need the piece of paper so i went and enrolled in fashion school and did a did I did my degree in haute couture and I think back then my intention was to move to Paris and work in one of the ateliers in Paris um, but I had to do an internship for school in order to graduate and so I was living in Ottawa at the time and I knew somebody who had graduated from that school many years earlier and had his own little uh, maison and so I said could I come do my and this is the this is the university that was in Montreal where you where you got your degree. No, the school was in Ottawa and and he was in Montreal and so I said, "Could I come and do my my internship at your place?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." So I I packed up a couple of suitcases, went and stayed at a friend of mine who was away for the summer. And um before my internship was up, they were like, "Yeah, we're just going to hire you, so maybe your mother can pack up the rest of your stuff and send it to Montreal." So I worked there for um, a year and a half or something, and it was great because it was a tiny company, and we did everything. We were three people, and one day I was making patterns and markers, and the next day I could be cutting production, uh, running it to the sewing shop, sometimes sitting on a sewing machine making samples myself, um, and then packing boxes and shipping. I mean, we did everything, so it was a great way to have an overview of how the industry worked. But uh, we had a, an appointment to go sell stuff at, at Saks in New York, like to meet with the buyers. And I was like, I don't have anything to wear. And so I found this funky vintage green woolen stripe fabric in a, in, in a shop somewhere. And, and I started making myself a suit for this, in, for this um, sales appointment. And in Montreal, it's common for people to go around on their lunch break to the different manufacturers and buy stuff wholesale and 
people would come in and buy stuff from us. And one day this group of women came in and they saw what I was doing and they sort of observed for a bit and they said, you're a tailor. I was like, well, I mean, I make suits. So I guess so. Yeah. And they came back the next day and handed me a business card and said, this is the manager of Samuelson, a suit manufacturer around the corner. He wants to meet you. So when I got my suit finished, I went over and, and he called over their quality guy and he said, look at his suit. And then he looked at it and he was like, yeah, no bad. <laughs> and so they said, do you want a job? And I was like, okay, sure. So I kind of fell into menswear by accident because I had that skill. And it turned out there weren't a lot of people, especially of a certain generation that had that skill. Um, you know, we had a huge influx of immigrants after the Second World War and you know, the early boomer generations that they came over with skills they had trained in Italy. You mentioned, you know, the going to the tailor shop, they go at 10, 12 years old, you go to school in the morning and they go to the tailor shop in the afternoon to apprentice that doesn't exist anymore. So it's it, it was tough to find younger people who knew the trade. So yeah, they, my, my first job in tailoring was at Samuelson uh, in 1996. Oh, well, that's interesting. And you touched on a, an interesting aspect, a really fun aspect, I think, to talk about in tailoring, which is kind of big and small. So you mentioned about how you were working in this small maison with your friends, right, with two or three people, and were able to get sort of a 360-degree view of how garments are made, about the entire business from cutting the cloth to putting it, putting it on the customer, draping it on the customer and selling it. But that makes me think of one of the articles that you had written where you talked about industrial tailoring versus a small shop tailoring and the, and the differences between those two worlds and about what makes sense in one makes sense in that world and not necessarily in the other. And so there's not just one right answer. Do you think uh, working and having that early experience in a small maison and getting that full um, high up perspective about how everything is run kind of developed you at an early age to maintain that mindset. I mean, that's something that not everybody thinks about how to run an industrial tailoring shop and then how to run a small artisanal industrial or a small artisanal tailor shop. Well, so my first job um, out of school, we were actually making underwear and loungewear and sleepwear. So it had nothing to do with tailoring. And so it was, I mean, it, it was that world. It was some stuff that was new to me, but it wasn't like when I went to Samuelson and they were like, okay, you know how to make a suit by hand. That's fine. But now you need to learn the equivalent techniques. So I had to sit down on the sewing floor and, and the intention was you're going to learn each of these operations. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe these machines even exist. Like, holy, you know, they do what it would take me two hours to do by hand. They can do in, in half a minute by machine. But these are really expensive machines, you know, like the machines to pad stitch lapels. Great time saver, but it's $100,000 for a pair of them. And you need a pair. You There's a left and right. So, um there's smaller, less expensive versions for tailor shops. They're still probably $15,000. So, you know, when you're looking at payback on a machine, most of these pieces of equipment don't make sense for a tailor shop. 
you have to be cranking through some serious volume. Like a lot of the industrial ones, they're geared for production between seven and 900 pieces a day. And if that's not the volume you're doing, it's not worth spending that money on them. Well, and that's exactly what you were talking about. And I, and I found the quote. It's, your article is a very important distinction as I prepare the armholes from 2008. Oh. Taking it back a couple of years here. And so you say there, you say, I'll, this is a quote from you. There are two sides of the tailoring coin. One is the independent tailor shop, the other, the factory. Yeah. There's not a lot that we haven't been able to automate or at least industrialize. There's certain operations that, well, we can get the same result um, from maybe a comfort perspective, maybe aesthetically, it's not where we want it to be. But yeah, if you have the money to spend, there's probably a machine that can do it. That's so interesting, especially for me coming from a background of completely handmade. Is it a balance? Is it trying to find a balance between quality work and production? Well, it's it's funny because something you're probably not aware of and most of your generation, even mine, aren't aware of is that ready-made clothing really sort of originated in the United States. And in the early days of it, the cutting was usually done in-house and then sent out to outworkers in their homes or little sub shops and things. And the quality was really inconsistent. And so even though most people were focused, if they were making ready-made garments, they were basically focused on making stuff for a cost. So inexpensively, they started to think that, you know, okay, we need more consistent results. Maybe we need to bring this in house. And so it was second industrial revolution, kind of late 1800s that factories started surging. In fact, um, the Civil War was the impetus for a lot of them. All of a sudden, they needed all these uniforms. So these factories sprung up to create uniforms. And then when the war was over, they were like, well, we have all this infrastructure, what do we do with it? So that's where the some of the first major ready-to-wear companies started to form. But it was still, you know, you'd have one person sit down and do most of the work start to finish. And again, that was inconsistent because you had like one guy who was super, super good and then the next person maybe not so good. And it was difficult to get trained talent. You, you could find like a couple of really good tailors, but then other seamstresses who maybe didn't have certain skills. So the idea of the subdivisional labor it merged around, I think it was around the 1890s. And there were a couple guys in Rochester. There were there were a number of major clothing companies in Rochester. Uh, but two of them decided to band together. There were like, I think they were around 20, like around your age, and said, let's start our own company. And instead of just trying to make cheap clothes, I bet that we could standardize and we could emulate the best custom tailors in the world and make a really top quality product at a better price. And Hickey Freeman was born and they were really focused on the best quality. And it's the motto, keep the quality up is engraved all over the building. And this was really unique. And at that time, you know, this was the golden age of American manufacturing. And so even in the sewing shops, they had engineers studying the movements and the positioning. And this is where a lot of these machines we use today, they're still almost the same as they were when they were designed 100 years ago. 
but the whole the subdivision of labor and having the subassembly shops and this whole sort of blueprint originated in the United States and people who had come from Italy to learn this American method and this is where you know Hickey Freeman was making the very best ready-made clothing anywhere in the world at that time and that immigrants were coming from Europe learning the system and then went back and taught them. They went to Xenia or... Xenia wasn't even really a thing. I mean, the there was no real manufacturing in Italy. Um, some of the, the top designers and people over at houses like Brioni and, and eventually Keaton, um, Chester Berry, like Devenza was basically started by Ch Chester Berry needing to... They were importing people into England and... At one point, they were like, we're bringing so many Italian tailors over. It probably makes more sense to go and set up production. And so they went and they started Devenza. But Chester Berry was founded by a couple of Americans. It was Americans who went over or Italian immigrants who had came, learned the American system and went back. Or, or just, you know, people came from around the world just to study the system. And so a lot of what we see today in Italy originated in the United States. So it's, it's cool to be in a place like Hickey Freeman, and we're still in the original building for now, where a lot of this was developed for the first time. That's incredible. And for anybody listening, if you're interested in learning more about uh, Hickey Freeman and the United States during the Industrial Revolution, and particularly as it relates to the garment production, um, I actually reposted a video that I think you have on your website. It's a PBS documentary about Rochester and the clothing industry, which I watched, and it was very interesting kind of eye-opening because you don't or at least i think the the average person doesn't necessarily think of america as the fashion capital or having a huge influence on maybe some of the european some of our european friends even though today like in japan american style is very very influential uh i, I want to go kind of go through what you, some of the things that you touched on because there are so many contradictions and i don't mean that i'm not trying to, to pick apart your argument i mean their prediction or their uh, contradictions in the goals that were trying to be to be achieved back then and what's trying to be achieved today because like you said hickey freeman was founded essentially to create the best garments keep the quality up and so back in the day i, I don't know if, is it fair to say that the average handmade garment was pretty terrible that's probably fair to say yes Today, people, at least in the bespoke side of things, kind of pish posh around ready to wear and industrial tailoring, but then don't necessarily recognize that 50 years ago or 100 years ago or even today, all tailors that make things by hand are not the greatest tailors. And you're not necessarily getting the greatest quality from their garments just because they're handmade. There's There was a really good article that published in the apparel arts, which means it was probably in the 1930s, um, by some of the executives of Hickey Freeman saying, just because something's made by hand doesn't mean it's better than made by machine. There's a lot of really bad handwork around. So we would take something that well made by machine over something uh, badly made by hand. Having said that, we do want to train our people to, to do the best possible handwork I'll have to dig that up. I think you'd find it interesting. I'm, I'm sure I posted it on my blog somewhere. I bet that would be a great read. 
I know, and I actually had this a similar sort of conversation um, with another uh, tailor who was on the podcast. His name's George from Speciale in um, in London, and they do bespoke wear, and they have some ready to wear as well. Uh, and we were talking about his training, and we talked about what they would call, I guess, in the UK, provincial tailors. So you have varying qualities of tailors. And so they would say, oh, well, that's a provincial tailor. You know, they're not a city tailor. So as you for, as you go further away, it's almost like the city is the epicenter. As you go further away from the city, you have less and less quality tailors as the dress is a little bit uh, more casual and, and less refined. Well, it was true. And the best tailors, the best custom tailors were Mayfair. They were Savile Row in the area. In fact, Hickey Freeman had an office on Savile Row 100 years ago because our buyers would go over looking for cloth. And so if you're you know, looking for cloth and if you're designing cloth, Savile Rows were um, even though you know the mills were further up north, that was the epicenter of tailoring in the world. Yeah, really interesting. And then today, again, I just just because it's handmade doesn't mean it's the best. I just think that's such an interesting topic that a lot of people need to kind of go over to and think just really think about if it makes sense to make something by hand or if it makes sense to make something like you know made made to measure or ready to wear so it you know that's a loaded thing because we're talking there's value proposition but there's also when you're buying a savile row garment you're not just buying a garment you're not just buying a suit you're buying a story you're buying a history you're buying a tradition and a custom um, apparently when Angus Cundy found out via my blog that the lapels in their suits were being padded by machine, he was very upset and said, no, our lapels will be padded by hand because when you come to Savile Row, even though you may not know what machine padding is or care or notice or anything, you're buying a Savile Row garment. It must be done by hand, period. So I have total respect for that you know if you're going to Savile Row if you're going to one of the couture houses in Paris you're buying more than just a suit it's it's an experience it's it's a tradition like buying hand knotted rugs or, or something sure you could get a cheaper one you know made by machine but and and maybe that's fine if I'm looking for just you know the best suit and I don't care how it was made then maybe you know machine made is better. But if if I'm looking something artisanal, and it's it's nice that in the last ten years or however long, just the focus on artisanal products in general has surged, which is why I think there's this renewed interest in tailoring and particularly hand tailoring. It's just this idea that this is something that was made by the labor of somebody's hands and and their time and their effort. They took a long time to learn this craft. And there's a real appeal to that. Do you think that appeal is going to have an effect on the heritage branding? Because I know you said when you're going to Savile Row, you're buying a heritage, you're buying a tradition. But in today's climate, it seems like more and more we're going away from heritage and more for individualism. Do you I mean, do you think that that sort of focus on artisanal handmade products is shifting away from this is our house on Savile Road that's been here for 150 years, and this is how we've done it. And so you're buying that story. That you think it's shifting away from that and more towards these are our hand techniques, and they are objectively better than someone else's hand techniques, and our fit of our of our garments is objectively better than other garments. Do you think it's going more in that direction? Well, I think you know you, you used 
individualized or something. You used a word that I think that that's key. Um, Individualism, yeah. You know, there was the aspect of the craft where we were trying to perfect and perfect and perfect and um, and not just tailoring. I mean, in general. And then we got to the point where things were so perfect and so uniform. Um, you know, it used to be a sign of quality that the plaids match properly everywhere. Well, now it's just a given. If you go and buy a $200 suit, they're going to match. There's a lot of things that were important at one point, and they're almost meaningless compared to what they once were. And so everything's just so uniform and the same. So I think we as consumers are more attracted to stuff that is more individual and unique. Uh, we used to bring back souvenirs from our travel because this is stuff you could only get by traveling. Well, now you can get everything everywhere. So it's, I guess, the appeal of the unique or the individual that may be driving that. Yeah. Well, what do you think then? So what are the new factors then to judge industrial tailoring and handmade tailoring by? So let's say we're getting away, you know, industrialization has kind of taken away some of those, some of the low hanging fruit of like, okay, the pattern's matching on my sleeve to the, to the front of my jacket. You know, we've got that down in industrial tailoring. Some handmade tailors still have trouble with that. But what are the factors that you can judge garments by today that you might find to be fair judges uh, of the garment? For me, fit is tantamount. I've said it a million times, a $7,000 suit that doesn't fit well, or rather, rephrase, a $200 suit that fits perfectly will always look better than a $7,000 suit that doesn't. Um, It so happens that traditional tailoring techniques help you to get a better fit and there's certain things that we would do in a tailor shop or in a very very high-end tailored clothing factory that you wouldn't easily be able to do on an industrial level so there's certain the certain shape you can build in using more traditional techniques that you can't when you're just banging out mass production suits so that will affect the fit you won't get the same kind of fit from a cheaply made industrial suit than you will from a better one. So for for me, fit is the top. And then after fit, you get into sort of kind of then you get into comfort, and then and and finishing. Um, the quality of the cloth affects a lot how it's handled. Uh, the cloth these days, I really don't like. We just we went too far in the quest for finer, finer, finer thinner 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 the super 250s the oh and it and it just it doesn't take a shape it doesn't hold the shape it leaves the factory looking perfect but the second the humidity is higher than 45 percent, everything puffs up and uh i just i prefer the sturdier more traditional english style cloth yeah which a lot of tailors do i mean and one because it works so well right mm-hmm. i mean you're able to to work it's it's easy to work it's almost like it wants to be worked by a tailor or and and two because it holds that that shape and all the the hand molding with the, with the iron or at least in traditional techniques the you know the shaping that you're going to put with the iron and the canvas it's going to hold all that and it holds up to wear better too yeah yeah even like a flannel which isn't necessarily the most durable fabric a heavier flannel still going to wear a lot better than a super 250s little piano yeah yeah 100 percent so you mentioned something really kind of subtle about a high-end industrial tailoring factory. Could you kind of take me through like what are the levels 
of industrial tailoring to where you have, okay, this is a $200 suit kind of factory to this is the best industrially, quote unquote, industrially made suit that can be made in a factory. So there were actually, there was a system of grading, like A, B, C, D level, and I don't remember what they were, um, but there there were specific requisites um, in order to be considered at a certain level of production that doesn't really exist now. So at once upon a time, they existed, and now it's kind of everything's together a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there isn't the distinction. It's part of it. So there was a list going around on Styleform at one point where they were trying to grade levels of products very broadly. And when I looked at it, I'm like, you can't really because like a given factory can produce many levels of things. Um, so maybe the X factory uh, produces a half canvas garment, but because generally their skill level is way better in general, that particular half a canvas garment may be better than a full canvas garment that comes from somewhere else. So uh, a lot of the sort of telltale signs that people look to um, aren't really the best. But that said, like, how do you evaluate if you're not an expert in the field? So again, you know, I go back to put it on, does it fit? Is it comfortable? That's what you should worry about. So once upon a time, there was that sort of grading system. And now it, it it's moved towards a factory is capable of doing everything, essentially, like you have one factory, and they're able to based on their skill level of the of their overall uh, employee produce a, a varying level of garment, it sounds like, right? It, well, it keys the the skill and the experience. Um, fabric being what it is, it moves. It's never consistent, and you know we we might run six hundred fabrics per season. And um, if you're running the same thing over and over and over again, you you learn how a particular fabric behaves and can adjust accordingly. But when you've got tons of them, and there's like hundreds of operations in it. If they're not all done 100% accurately, you need to know how to adjust subsequent operations. And when you've got less experienced people, they don't know how to deal with that. And they just sort of, they just bang it out regardless. Whereas when you've got highly experienced people, you get something and, okay, this is a little off. I know how to deal with this to make it right. Um, And that's what makes the real difference in a really quality operation. Well, that definitely makes sense. I know well, because then it gets in, into sort of the difference between an industrially made garment and a, and a garment made in a, in a small tailor shop, which is that the tailors are able to kind of compensate for the imperfect imperfections that are human. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you if your cutter cuts out cuts out a, a jacket or whatever, and it's not super precise in the make, those skilled workers are going to be able to adjust for that. Or even like things like once you pad the lapel and you press it flat, the shape of the lapel that was struck out by the cutter isn't necessarily going to remain the same. And so that worker is going to, you know, change that shape of the lapel, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like in the factory setting, you need the experience of someone from that small tailor shop, which is exactly what you had, right? Like when when you first were hired by Samuelson, you had sort of that handmade experience to know what to do when things aren't necessarily going so well, uh, or at least to compensate slightly with your with your hand techniques. 
and then that gets applied to the factory setting. So you have the precision of all those machines and tools and processes, and then you've merged that with your hand techniques and your experience. So that's it's is that kind of the the magic formula then? It is. It's a prime distinction when you're talking about industrial tailoring between what we would say or call an engineered garment where it's cut out and the seam allowances are precise and they're set and we, we would call them net patterns where there's no access. So you cut it out and you put your seams together and you sew your 5-8 seam and that's it. And the pieces go together and if anything's twisted or off balance, it is what it is. You just sew it, period. You don't need the skill. Um, you put a person down, say, you match this point, you put this point together, and you sew a straight seam, that's it. Whereas in higher levels of tailoring, we do it more like the shop where the lining is cut bigger, the, sh the canvas is cut bigger, everything's sort of cut bigger than it needs to be because as you work through it, you trim it down, you shape it, but it requires a lot of skill to understand how to put the different layers together in order to shape them and trim them down and that's also a whole lot of extra work. So there's a lot of more time that goes into it. So between an industrial-made suit that can be done in 90 minutes versus the Salva Rose suit that takes 70 hours, there's a very large spectrum of what can be done. Yeah. I'm curious, what is what do you think the time would be to create an industrially-made garment that's as close to a Savile Row suit, what do you think the time would be? Because like if you're saying 90 minutes for maybe an average industrially made garment, I don't know if that's half canvas or full canvas or whatever. But if you're trying to get the maximum quality, do you know what sort of a ballpark time would be on that suit? I mean, it really depended on how much you wanted to do by hand. Oxford does practice. Oxford 2X does more handwork than anybody on earth more than Keto, more than Brioni, anywhere. And I don't know what the, the time study in their suit. It's probably still up in the 30, 40 hours. But if you were talking like Keton or Brioni, you're probably looking at like a 14-hour garment, which is still a lot considering you can make one in 90 minutes in a fully automated situation. Yeah. So I'm going to take us a little bit back into your articles. Uh, because one thing I wanted to touch on was Tutto Fatto Mano, your your blog, which is actually now at robertjeffrey.us, if I'm if my websites are correct. I think it's the first article that you posted, made by hand. There are two rules of tailored clothing. If your method (parentheses rule works), use it, and if your rules aren't working, make new rules. How did you get? How did you arrive to that conclusion? And then write it on a blog and, and put it out there. What what pushed you to do that? Well, that was an evolution of a rule that we had in music. The conductor is always right. And if the conductor is not right, see rule number one. I grew up with the mentality that my mother was very much like, there's the proper way of doing something, and then there's everything else. Um, and surgers were for lazy people. And, it, and that was reinforced at Samuelson that there was one correct way of doing things. I mean, they were a little bit more open-minded at Samuelson, but I really sort of had in my head, and most tailors do, they learn that this is the best and the only method of doing something. And when I left Samuelson, it was because another company in Montreal um, who their designer, pattern maker, 
had an embolism in China. They fished him out of a bathtub in Hong Kong. And they were like, we need somebody. He may not be able to work much, if at all, when he comes back. And so my mentor at Samuelson said, you know how to do things the slow way. Now you need to learn how to do things the fast way. Go out in the world and learn how to make an industrial garment and learn the whole sort of in-between of between the low end and the high end of the sector. And when you've learned all that, come back. So I, within a few weeks of starting that new job, they put me on a plane and I headed west and kept going until I headed home. Like I, I went around the world to... I think probably 22 factories where all of a sudden I'm exposed to so many different ways of doing things and you still end up with what looks like a suit. And that's where I started being exposed to like all these different methods and different techniques and, and, and where I was like, okay, if, you know, I may, I may have a factory or a tailor shop doing something, doing it perfectly well and then I try to make it work in this other place. And for whatever reason, it's not working. Well, if it's not working and if you can't get it to work, you know what the end result you want is abandon the method and come up with a new method to get that end result. And that's always been really important to me in my career. Um, you know, it, it's easy to say, okay, I have one pattern. I'm going to send it to 20 factories and I want the same result out of all of them. You won't. You won't get it. If, if you want the same result, you send your pattern and then you go to the factory and you work with that factory to adapt their methods so that the result is the same. And that's what I was doing at that company for, for years is I would go and visit all those factories. Um, so that really, really influenced me. So whenever I you know, met other tailors, and we would when we're traveling because there's other guys visiting the same factories and um, or other factories and you know when you're traveling you've got some downtime in the evening and the weekends if you're not traveling and so we'd hang out and talk and chat and hey how did how did you do this buttonhole how did you do this other thing and there weren't a lot of things that I hadn't seen um, for a long time that damn Azola Lucida was something that eluded me <laughs> for a long time <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it's everywhere, all over the planet. I think I blame Tom Ford for that. I actually just made one the other day. I posted it on my Instagram story. The Lazada Rushi, but yeah. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. You know, I, I tried to figure that for so long, and I tried to get, I asked anybody who, and, and some guys were like, oh yeah, you just do this and this and this and this. And I'm like, you don't know. You're just, you're just stringing a lot of bullshit to, instead of saying, I don't know. And then somebody, I encountered somebody who did know how to do it and they didn't want to show me. Um, and it honestly, it just came into my head once I finally figured it out. And I was like, duh, of course. Um, yeah. 
I actually, when I was in Rome, I went to tailoring school for for one year there. And the first year, it was basically, or at least for, you know, the first couple of months, they're showing you stitches. You're doing primarily just hand sewing. Um, and then we did buttonholes. That was probably the second thing that I was, that I was taught. And now I don't even remember what I was taught for the, for how to do a uh, la lucida. Um I just kind of think, oh, you know, the silk, the buttonhole thread needs to be wrapped around the gimp, and I'll make that work. And so, yeah, it's, I don't even remember what I was, was taught on how to do that. Well, you know, a lot of people refer to them as the Milanese buttonhole, but you won't find a tailor in Milan that knows how to do it. But it was more, there was, from what I can tell, there was a brand of, of gimp known as La Milanese. Um, and I've seen a Spanish version also called some variation of, of Milanese. So I think it was just the term for gimp. And in, fe- in French, the gimp is called Milanese. Um, so I think that's how people got that name. But really, it comes from the Rome area, not from Milan. So how did that whole journey then, Where did, how did you go from traveling the world and learning all these techniques to saying, I want to post about the things that I've learned? So the tradition of taking apart somebody else's clothes is long and illustrious. I mean, Edward VII's cast-offs went back to Italy, and they would take it apart and, and study the techniques, and that's sort of where the Neapolitan School of Tailoring was born. So, yeah, we, we had always studied other people's garments at Samuelson. Of course, we were looking at Canali and Zegna and Brioni, seeing what they were doing, what we could understand and learn. And I mean, we always did that. And the blog wasn't born from that. The blog was started. So I don't remember how, but somehow I, I discovered this thread at Ask Andy where they were discussing canvas. And a retired tailor who used to work at a Hart Schaffner Marx was saying, no, no, there's no such thing as half canvas. It's not true. And there was these discussions going on and they were talking about canvas infusing and like there was a lot of misinformation in there. And I was like, okay, come gather around kids. I'm going to explain a few things. And it turned into this mega thread. Um, and I was like, I can't believe people are actually are interested in this stuff. And um, and that's sort of where the blog was born, because I was thinking about, okay, there's misinformation. There's no information on the web. If you're interested in, in, in clothing, where do you go to find like impartial information that's not you know, you're, you're talking up your craft because you got your salesman of, of course it must be done by hand. If it's not, it's, and also cause just cause I was doing experiments and opening other garments and stuff. And I thought, well, I, I may as well put this out there in case somebody else is interested in seeing it. I didn't think I was going to get the kind of readership I got. I mean, I was amazed. Um, I was like, I can't believe this number of people are interested in this. Um, and so I just, you know, started writing and sharing stuff I was doing, um, which is kind of where I'm at now. It's, it's, and maybe I should have started a new blog, but I couldn't be bothered. And you know, now that I'm doing something new in work right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find stuff in the world and on the internet, and I can't find the information. So I'm going, well, if I can't find it, other people can't find it. So 
as I figure stuff out, I'll post it out there for anybody else that may be interested. And so now Google's going to be all totally confused by my blog. <laughs> I won't know how to rank it or, but whatever. It's it's just my place to put share what I'm doing and what I think. And so, what was the? You said you weren't expecting the reaction. Uh, kind of the the amount of people that were interested. Did that hit right after that? Right after you posted your first post? No, I I didn't even know about um, stat tracking or anything. In fact, so in order to make it seem the most impartial, like I didn't even have my name attached to it. It was completely anonymous for years because I didn't want it to be like the employee of this company because then it might seem like what I'm writing may be slanted and benefit or conversely maybe one way or another lead back favorably yeah. discussed right. yeah i just i wanted to be completely impartial and fair and just say this is what it is so my name wasn't attached to it i wasn't tracking statistics i didn't know what the readership was eventually well and at that time this is in the early this is like 2008 right 2000 yeah so at that time even with blogs i don't know how much you know, analytics. I don't even know what the analytics were like in, in, 10 years ago. I had something called Site Tracker on it and gave me a few numbers. And fortunately, it it helped me understand what was more interesting to people. So it helped me sort of evolve a little bit just because I surprisingly saw that, oh, well, you know, when my style is more conversational than purely academic, people respond better. So maybe I'll, be, you know, make it more personal and less dry uh, you know, I saw the sort of things that repeatedly drove traffic. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting to you. Because like, you know, for me in the trade, there's stuff that will be necessarily very interesting to me, but not interesting to somebody who's completely out of it. So it it helped to understand what people wanted to, to read about. Yeah, definitely. Did, did you ever at any point sort of think, you know, who is my reader? Who are they? And what are they trying to get from reading Tutto Fatto Mano? Is it because they're trying to apply these these thoughts and, and information in their own factory or because they're trying to be better home sewers? Like, what was, did you ever think about that reader? I really didn't because it wasn't that I was trying to market a blog. I mean, it wasn't, these days it would be. But back then, you weren't trying to get traffic for ad revenue or anything. I wasn't making money. I was just putting stuff out there. So I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm working on. And if you want to read it, great. It's there. But there was no sort of attempt to understand that. And I was always fascinated when I'd meet somebody and they were like, oh, yeah, I read your blog. And I was like, really? <laughs> Well, actually, I, I wanted, I have a couple articles that I have just jotted down here. And we, we had already touched on kind of your, that very first article that you, that you did, which I thought was very interesting and surprisingly still extremely relevant. Like that was probably my favorite, but your first post was probably my favorite post and the most applicable blog post on tailoring that I've seen anywhere. I'll have to go back and read it. I'm sort <laughs> well, of afraid. I mean, like 15 years later, you go back and you go, <laughs> I wrote that. Oh, my God, I was full of shit. 
Well, I can tell you, I don't think you're full of shit. And I think, <laughs> I don't think you are. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope that means something. Um, but no, I wanted to go in towards uh, some of your more recent articles. You you talked about one of them is, is entitled Zoom Tailoring. And then you also, it also is, uh, like you said, you kind of had more of a conversational style. You'd, you'd seen what people liked and you'd gotten into that conversational style, which I think is seen in this exact post where you have Zoom Tailoring noun the work or workmanship of a tailor during zoom calls, which is very playful and conversation conversational. How do you think zoom has impacted industrial tailoring as well as kind of artisanal tailoring? And and how do you think that's going to, how do you, how do you think technology will impact the sector in the next 20 years? I don't know. You know, tailoring was on a long, slow decline. And then it seemed like maybe it was on a little bit of an uptick. I mean, Suit Supply was doing great things for introducing tailoring to a younger audience. My generation, sort of, we went through the dot-com period where we weren't wearing tailored clothing. And tailored clothing was what my father wore. So it was interesting to us when we saw younger people who were interested in tailored clothing, because instead of being associated with what his dad wore, because he didn't, his dad wore khakis and polos, um, it was something new. So there were encouraging signs, and then the pandemic struck, and it just destroyed the industry. Um, there's a lot of the clothing industry. If you're in e-com and you're selling athleisure or comfortable stuff or whatever, you're doing a killing, whereas the tailored clothing industry has just been decimated. And will we ever come back to anything like pre-tambic levels? I don't know. I hope so, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, well, and then you also see, uh, probably good for suits of fly that they had those, I think they have a, uh, an elastic waistband trouser. <laughs> Where it's like it's like a pleated trouser, so from from below the waist it looks like a normal trouser, but above the waist it's kind of like this sweatpants sort of sort of thing. I'm sure that's helped them. Well, how how many times have I've been in meetings with a shirt and a jacket and <laughs> sweats on the lower half? It's yeah, it's coming all too common now. It's becoming all too common. So, do you think um, technology is going to play a bigger role? And in the artisanal scene specifically, because I know like you've you've done a lot of stuff with uh, CGI and 3D modeling and particularly in the larger fashion houses like Dolce Gabbana, you know, Hickey Freeman, all of them, they use much more they use much more technology. So moving forward, do you see that moving into the artisanal space or do you kind of think that's just kind of it's going to stay how it is pretty much? Oh, oh no, it, and it's already doing it. I mean, I was on a web presentation a few years ago where a guy who does custom clothing, um, he adapted by adopting technology. It was tough to take measurements or get up close and do fittings, and he adopted a mobile technology where you use your phone and it grabs your measurements. And he said, "Listen, I've I've only had one issue where something was a little off by using these measurements." So as that technology improves very, very rapidly, it's totally going to become a thing where it, it can be sometimes uncomfortable taking measurements or having your measurements taken. You're in very close proximity. And if you're in various states of undress, well, if instead of doing that, I can step into a booth and have all those measurements extracted in a few seconds, why wouldn't you use it? I mean, those booths have existed, but they are really expensive and they're not portable. The phones are getting really good at extracting measurements. I mean, it's not the phones themselves. It's the software. 
but you know, I bought the iPhone 12 Pro Max to play around with the LiDAR scanner. And it's, it's amazing some of the stuff I can get out of it. Yeah, what have the results been? I'm curious, can you, what I'm really curious about is if you can preset, like if you can use that software to determine, to, to, to use custom measurements, because different tailors, I'm thinking, I guess I'm thinking more about kind of the small tailor shop when I say choose those measurements, because some tailors work with, they just simply work with different measurements, or they'll take, you know, the length of the trousers, obviously you take that at different points, depending on the height of the trouser, like is that is that able to be integrated into the software so there's different ways of handling that um in the earlier days of you know i worked with several companies who were trying to develop these things um to to guide them because they were great technicians or great programmers and computer vision people but they didn't understand the clothing industry so i worked with a lot of them and some of them you know it's very complicated if i wanted to take a different kind of measurement and like oh you busted the algorithm it's going to take us 10 weeks to rewrite this in order to extract it and others were much more agile in terms of oh yeah i can create new points of measure and i can do this and do that some of them just take a, a gazillion measurements and you got to sort through them and there's also you know the option of bringing the scanned avatar into a different piece of software where you as a tailor could use it to extract measurements you can draw on the, the avatar if you want to say, I want to measure from the front breast line around the back of the neck down to the other breast line. So there is technology you can use to do that now. That's incredible. So are you able to, with the phone, with the software that's available for, for a phone, are you able to almost do, you, you can take measurements on the body, but it doesn't 3D scan the body. That would be sort of that booth concept, right? In, where you can bring it into the into some sort of software to, to be able to draw over it. Right? Most of the phone apps that exist right now, they exist, they take two or three pictures. Um, the problem is a lot of it, they rely on statistical analysis to compare to databases of, of human beings rather than actually, you know, they'll look at seven or eight different measurements and then they extrapolate the rest, which is not really accurate. I mean, it, it may be enough for uh, most people's, purposes but i want something more accurate and so it's sort of this next generation of of scans where and there's certainly a technique to it um in order to use a phone and get a proper 3d scan of a body uh, i've been practicing i have to keep practicing um there's a few apps out there that will extract the measurements but i'm sort of like i want to get an avatar because i'm no longer of the the idea that the measurements are so important. I mean, I always kind of what, because I love draping and in draping, you're not drafting. You, you, you have no, practically no measurements, no nothing. You just take cloth and you mold it around a form until it's the shape that you want it. Um, and so for years and years, I saw the, the 3D world developing and I was like, I can't wait until the day comes where the body scans are accurate enough, but also the physical modeling of what happens when you lay cloth over these shapes gets accurate enough. And it's only been recently that it's approaching the sort of accuracy that actually drape in a computer or conversely fit a person in a computer where I don't have to measure them. I don't maybe even have to meet them in person as long as I have an avatar of them and I can do that fitting in a virtual space and have it very, very close to where it needs to be 
in reality. You know, it's not quite there yet, the technology, but it'll get there. That's incredible. So one thing you mentioned that I think is very Italian was you don't like the measurements. You don't, you kind of are going away from the measurements, which is super Italian, at least in terms of tailoring, um, where basically, you know, uh, it's happened a couple of times where, uh, you know, these older tailors will say to me, you know, just make a pattern, make a pattern, and then we'll look at it. They don't really care, or at least, you know, in my experience, they don't really care so much about the actual measurements of the pattern. As long as you have fabric and you're able to drape it during the fitting, you're going to find a, a good result. As long as you're in the ballpark, then you just go and take your pins out and you can drape it. Well, because there's, there's going to be so much transformation with the iron work, with other things. Things are going to move. Like, yes, it helps. Um, I mean, if you're cutting checks or something, you want a good draft. Otherwise, things are not necessarily going to be matching up. But if you're working in a plain cloth and if you're a good enough fitter and manipulator, you can just cut four rectangles and end up with something that fits right. So, you know, a lot of people, they're so obsessed with drafting methods and things. And I'm like, it's really meaningless if you know how to manipulate the cloth. So you have these this, these phone softwares and these boosts that are able to take the, the, the measurements of a client. How does that get transferred then into the fitting process? Because I think it's great to be able to get that those measurements from the client remotely. But then, like you said, with the avatar, once you're able to really 3D scan the body, then you can put things over the body later in some sort of software. But how do you actually put the garment on the client remotely and do a fitting remotely? Well, that's where, so some of these phone apps, um, if, if you're a customer, like if, if I, in my day job, said I'm going to pay for your service, my customers can scan themselves. Depending on the subscription package I take, maybe I just get measurements, or they actually send me the 3D OBJ file of that person's body that I can bring into my 3D software and do the fittings in that 3D space. That's incredible. Okay, so, so really it is going towards a getting an avatar like as soon as possible getting a 3d scan of your client's body because then you don't really need them for physical fittings correct i mean you need them for fit you need them to feel it they need to and to get to a point where you understand the software enough so you've got to adapt because you know when we're working in 3d you're working with just the one layer of cloth and you can the first times you start working in this, you, you fit it and it's perfect. And then you get into the real world and it's like, why is this way too tight? Oh, I didn't think about the lining and the pocketing and the waistband curtain and all this other stuff that's in there. So it's, there's more of a learning curve and there's more of, it's got to evolve a little bit more where it's really good enough that you can use it and go like almost to finish without physical fittings. Um, but it, it will get there. It's doable. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and that's great because it, seem, it seems like you're then getting the most important thing for you, for, at least for you, the fit out of the way. You, you know, we talked about what you're, the importance of, you know, how to judge tailoring. And you said, so fits number one, then you have things like comfort and details and all that. So with these 3D avatars and technology and software, you're able to get that fit bang on and think about other things for the client as well you know the tricky thing about fitting especially remote fitting is like you think that when you see something 
you think you know how to correct it, you're going to do something. Sometimes it doesn't work. Whereas you'd have to go back and forth and back and forth for multiple fittings and spend a lot of time. Whereas in the 3D space, you see the results. And if it doesn't work, you do it again. And you're not wasting a client's time. And you can really play around. I when Early on, when I was first playing with it, and I sat down and I was like, okay, I've done this once before years ago, but let's see if I can do it again to figure out how to match the sleeve plaids in the front and the back. And I was playing around and playing the different things and I finally got it. And I realized like, if I had done this in real life, I would have had to have spent so many hours and hours and hours and so many iterations of garments and how much money and time would have cost to do this. Or I've just sat down and done it an hour or two. And I actually tested out in real life. Like it's, it wasn't enough that I was like, oh, I did it virtually. And it's true though. So I actually cut a coat and made it up and, and, and it did work. And that's where I started to become more of a believer in the technology. One thing I wanted to ask you about going, talking about technology and just like how you said, you became more of a believer. You tested it. You tested the quote unquote theory and the technology, and then you realized it in, in real life. How, how have you dealt with change going from working in the industry? How have you dealt with change? I, I Again, coming from the background that I come from, it's very difficult to get certain people to change in the industry or to do something different. And we actually talked about this earlier about how you said your mother, you know, she was this way and this is the right way to do it. And surgers are for lazy people. Why is it that you have been so moldable and so ready to change in the industry and, and test a theory and then say that's, that worked, you know, let's actually integrate that into our system. Why, why is it that you have that and other people don't? Probably it started with, so my mother was this, the, the artist and my father was the scientist. He worked for the National Research Council of Canada and um, I was exposed to sort of the scientific process and testing hypotheses and, and exploring and being curious about stuff and experimenting with stuff early on. And maybe I took that with me. Um, certainly the early days of traveling around the world and suddenly seeing that, no, there's a million different ways of doing something and also having the access to do stuff. You know, if you're a tailor shop and you want to try a new technique for a sleeve, you make one suit, two suits. What does that tell you? If you're in a factory setting and you're making 900 at a day, you could test a whole bunch of techniques in basically what's like 15 minutes worth of production time. Um, and get faster results so and then to your point about people not wanting to change you know I would occur, encounter that a lot when I was traveling and going to factory and saying I'd like you to do this and like you can't you can't you can't and I spend a lot of time where I would sit down on a sewing machine and do it myself and show them and say see I just did it it can be done now let's try and then just learning about getting buy-in from people um, a lot of clothing designers and when I say designers like we refer to them these days just as pattern makers or technical designers but we were called designers back then they would go into a factory and say you're going to do this because I tell you to and it's a law and because I say so um, you would get a lot of resistance from people and and if they didn't want to do it that way they'd even sometimes work to sabotage it so they could say see I told you it wasn't going to work so when I'm dealing with factories and factory employees and stuff, 
I'm, I'm really first open to listening to their ideas because a I'm gonna learn something from them, but also I want buy-in from everybody. I want them to to agree and to participate in the change or the technique so that they agree that it's the right thing to do. So they're invested in making sure it works too. So it's just how I've handled clothing factories. Wow. It sounds like you've handled them with teamwork. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause there's, you know, there's so many people that go into making a garment and if 99% of the people do their job perfectly and one totally blows it, garment's still a second. So Every single person involved in every step of, of producing a piece of clothing is just as important as every other one. So you said, you know, traveling the world and going into different factories, you'd be met with opposition from these people, whether it's based on certain techniques or, or getting the result that you want to get and them saying it's not possible. But how have you faced that same challenge less when it's less tangible like when you're talking about ideas and processes and when you're working with management and you're working with employees how do you encourage that sort of environment of teamwork when it's not so tangible and it's more theoretical or or more idea driven or if you don't know how to do it i mean i was talking about where i know the technique and i can do it but what if you're looking for something you know i've always looked at other garments and, and seen something that inspired me. And I'm like, okay, how do we achieve that? And if I don't know how to do it, so how do we get there? So it's always about sort of clearly defining the objective. What are we trying to get out of this? How do we approach it? What are the different ways we can think of maybe trying to achieve that and trying all of them and being open to all of them? And even though you think a particular method is how you want to get there, Maybe there's a better way of doing it. And if you're only focused on proving this one method is right, you're closing your mind off to other methods that may be just as good or better. So I've always sort of even been purposeful about if I think a particular technique is going to get me somewhere, I'm, I'm going to try the opposite of it at the same time and see what happens. And maybe maybe the opposite works. Who knows? What's kind of your your setup in terms of the team that you work with or the teams that you have worked with, uh, Hickey Freeman, Samuelson, who are the people that you have correspondence with that make what you do possible? So, you know, there's a, a structure. We have a the vice president who's in charge of quality and he's sort of the, the other key person. And then there'll be levels of supervision that were broken down into sections and, and there'll be a supervisor for each section. And so there's always, if I want to try something new, it's, it's with head of quality and the supervisors. And like I said, I want buy-in from all of them. I don't want them to force something to them to do something that they don't want to do or they don't think is right because you won't get a consistent good result out of it. So it's always sort of, okay, guys, let's get together. And a lot of guys who do what I do have always been very sort of, almost tyrants about, you know, no, this is my method. This is what we're going to do. And that's it. And I'm more like, okay, you have to produce this every day. You have to do this. So let's get to a method that you're happy with and that you agree to, to. So even sometimes they'll come to me and say, Hey, I'd like you to make certain changes to the pattern, whatever. And I may not be completely in agreement with it, but I'll be like, okay, well, you know, if we're 50, 50 vote here, um, 
I have my opinion, but you're the one who has to do it every day. So that flips it in their favor. Hmm. That seems like a, a really big advantage for a lot of the bigger brands and industrial tailoring in general is that there is sort of an objectivity and a bigger goal and a bigger mission that you're trying to go for um, in the factory setting. It's not so much, like you said, like a tyrant where you, where you have one guy with a thousand helpers who's just who are just sewing for him. When the structure was often like that, and in a company like Hickey Freeman that's 120 some odd years old, there's sometimes very old structures and and yeah there too sort of the designer was god and you didn't fart without his permission and blessing and it can sometimes create unfortunate environments where people are afraid to do things afraid to suggest things afraid to come to you with an idea because um, if it didn't come from the designer it's it's crap or even be afraid to make mistakes, which I think it can be extremely detrimental because if oh, yeah. somebody, if they're not able to fail, how are you ever going to get better? So it can sometimes be hard to break that in a company. Did you encounter that when you when you first got to Hickey Freeman? Because so you worked with for with Samuelson, and then how did you how did it end up that you moved to Hickey Freeman? So it was sort of a circuitous route. Um, my intention initially was that you know I would do as my mentor said, go out in the world and learn all these things, and I said. Okay, I want to end up retiring from Samuelson or Hickey Freeman. So I sort of said, there's certain places I have to go and certain things I have to do, but I, I want to sort of spread it out so that um, when I'm ready to sort of slowly wind down my career, then I'm coming back. Uh, I happen to come back sooner than I intended. So I started at Samuelson. I worked for a variety of companies um, after that. Then when 10 some odd years ago, I came to Chicago and work with Harsh After Marks and Hickey Freeman. And then we went through a series of changes and upheaval. We sold off Hickey Freeman. Um, it was purchased by Samuelson or the company that owned Samuelson. And so I eventually ended up back with both Hickey and Freeman Samuelson. And so I sort of came full circle and I'm back where I started. Wow. And I think, yeah, is it, I think it's the Authentic Brands yeah. group or something that, so they own, they're the parent company of, of both Hickey Freeman and Samuelson or? No, no. So they own the intellectual property, the brand, Hickey Freeman. Okay. So at that time, um, the company sold off the IP. Uh, Authentic Brands Group bought the Hartshafter Marks brand and the Hickey Freeman brand. And the person who owned it before that maintained the manufacturing. So he owned the factories and he licensed the name back. Uh, and then the company further split. Uh, so Authentic Brands still owns uh, the label. Can we talk in general about industrialized tailoring, um, industrial tailoring uh, as it relates to American industrial tailoring and European industrial tailoring? We already spoke about kind of how um, Hickey Freeman really invented a lot of the systems that are still in place today across the world. What are the differences that you see from American industrialized tailoring to European to Asian? So... Hundred years ago, there were about thirty-five hundred clothing factories in the United States, and I, I mean men's tailored clothing, men's suit factories. That's a lot of suit factories. There's like less than half a dozen now. Things shifted to Europe. Um, it started with Brioni, who first pushed the whole "made in Italy" as a thing, and because Italy had not only the craft and the tradition, but this focus on design 
and and quality that they really sort of upped the game in terms of what they were making and and refined it a lot of the equipment was starting to be made in Europe rather than the United States and um a lot of the money i mean the legacy clothing makers in North America, the ones that are left, a lot of them are very old. And what that sometimes means is that so is a lot of the equipment and a lot of the facilities. And yet some of the newer factories in Europe, and then especially in Asia, um, I mean, the factories in Asia, you could eat off the floor, and they're brand new, and they have brand new equipment. And they do have some really good technique. People, unfortunately, often have this idea of Asian quality as being poor. But, if, you know, we were trading silk with them back at a time where we were basically wearing burlap. And there's a lot of history of quality needlework and technique that comes out of Asia. So it's, it's not fair to just say, oh, if it's Chinese, it's crap. They can make some really beautiful stuff. I've seen things being made that was styled by Westerners. And if you didn't know better, you would swear this was like made in some really great tailor shop in Naples, but it was made in a Chinese factory. They're, they, they're out there and they can, they can do some really nice stuff. Did they basically do what you did when you got sent out into the world and toured these different factories? Was Do you think that's sort of the process that they went through? So... There, it was sort of multi-layered. There was stuff like, you know, back then there were companies that would send their people around the world and companies like GFT, which would do more than just send their technician, but they would build factories around the world and they'd be identical. And so you would have a factory in the United States and one in Mexico and one in Europe, one in China, and they were identically set up and producing the same thing. When GFT sort of split up some of those really good technicians ended up going over to Europe. There was one who was at Armani and he went to China and lived there and taught them. And he was Italian. He went from Italy to China and there was a number of them. I, and I've worked a couple of, in fact, more than a couple, many Italian technicians who had gone over and were paid very handsomely and had very nice lifestyles to teach these factories how to do these Italian methods of, of construction. So, um, yeah, there, there's some places over there that do some seriously good work. So going forward, what are your next objectives? It seems like, you know, you, you, you work for Samuelson, Hickey Freeman, a variety of other brands, traveled the world, seen essentially everything that someone could want to see being a tailor in terms of technique, uh, methods, uh, managing your labor force, what what are sort of the next avenues? I think we kind of touched on it in terms of software and 3D modeling and that sort of thing. What are the next objectives for you personally? So um, I realized a few years ago that if I wasn't an active participant in developing the tools that I use, I would never get exactly what it is that I wanted. I was watching as the early vendors of 3D technology and stuff were developing things. And I was thinking, well, it's never going to work for me in tailor clothing. And at one point, I was like, well, if I don't tell them what I need, 
if I don't participate, if I don't guide them, how, they can't read my mind. They won't actually like come up with exactly what it is what I need, whether it's technology or machines or anything. So I decided back then to take a more active role, whether it's our pattern making software or and I, I work with the people who make that pattern making software to give them my perspective of, hey, this would make my life a lot easier if we could do this or that. And now it's the same thing with the 3D. I'm participating with them, which means I have to work with it. I have to use it and not just one system. I'm trying to learn as many of them as I can. And there's a hell of a learning curve involved. But if I don't, not only I can't participate in the development of it, but it makes it difficult to make choices about it, which software to, to work with. The industry will move there and I can be left behind. Like most of the guys that do my job currently don't use computers. They think email is cutting edge technology. They're still making paper patterns. They don't believe you can grade a pattern on a computer. I don't want to be that guy 10 years from now who's like, well, oh, 3D doesn't work. You can't use a machine to take measurements. You can't, you know, you're, you're either ahead of the curve or you're left behind it. So right now, personally, I'm, I'm focused on sort of learning that technology and growing with it and helping them grow into the industry. I really want to thank you for agreeing to do this interview with me. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people are going to like it and find it very interesting. Um, your willingness to change is something that really stands out for me about you. And, and, uh, and I really appreciate that. And I think that's so helpful in the industry and for, uh, especially for younger people to see that changes is, is a good thing and, and is happening in the industry. And, um, and, and thank you for coming out. Well, pleasure. Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time. Thank you.